Welcome to episode 81 of the How Did Happen podcast, hosted by Mike Malatesta. In this episode, Mike welcomes John Corcoran, a partner at Rise25, a company that helps B2B businesses get more clients, referrals, and strategic partners through their Done For You podcast service. He's also host of the Smart Business Revolution podcast, where he interviews today's top entrepreneurs and authors to reveal how they use relationships to grow their businesses and their incomes. John graduated from UC Santa Barbara with an English degree and received his law degree from the University of San Francisco Law School. John's career began as a speechwriting intern in the White House before earning a full-time position there and in the administration of California's Governor Gray Davis. As an intern, he was given a unique opportunity to write a speech that President Clinton delivered in the East Wing of the White House. Later, after collaborating with Aaron Sorkin, a line from a Thanksgiving proclamation that John wrote was used on the TV show The West Wing. While practicing law in his own boutique firm, John was writing on the side for publications like Forbes, The Huffington Post, and Newsweek. When it became clear to John that blogs, webinars, and podcasts could move the needle for him more than just writing, he began the gradual shift away from law and toward full-time content creation. I'm Joe Danucci, Mike's podcast producer and blog collaborator, and I've got a quick favor to ask. If you like what Mike's doing with this podcast, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. You can also rate it on iTunes in less than 30 seconds by visiting MikeMalatesta.com slash review. Your opinions will help us make the show as interesting and relevant as possible. Thank you. Mike and John cover a ton of great stuff in this episode, including how moving often as a kid helped him appreciate the need to cultivate relationships, why he doesn't subscribe to the burn the boats mentality, how a letter to the editor at the New York Times got him noticed, why a podcast is better than a coffee meeting, and his keys for building an awesome network. The podcast I found was a better way to network with higher caliber people, frankly. Like I would get into conversation with higher and higher caliber people. And initially I started just dipping my toe in the water locally here. And uh, lawyers um, in my community that were way ahead of me, you know, had big practices, were really successful. And I interviewed them and they said yes. And it was like, wow, this is really cool. And eventually I realized it was a more effective way of networking because you're delivering value, unlike a coffee meeting where you're maybe inconveniencing the person on the other side versus like when you're recording it over the internet and you're publishing it to the web, you're elevating them and sharing their thought leadership with the world, giving them exposure, promoting their business. And so it's actually a totally different ball game. This episode is brought to you by Hello Water. Hello Water is fiber infused with zero sugar, five grams of fiber with five inspiring flavors, a fun and fresh delivery system to help curb appetite and promote gut health. Smile, laugh, live, love, and dance your way to a healthy lifestyle. Visit HelloWater.com to find a retailer near you. Hello Water, inspire health. And now, here's John Corcoran. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Uh, I am very, very pleased to have John Corcoran on today. John, hi, welcome to the show. Mike, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Um, sort of, re- I'm, I'm returning a couple of favors here, but but there's also a sort of a selfish reason for it. So John had me on his show back in July, and I was very grateful for that. Um, introduced to John by Todd Barden, our mutual friend. and uh, but, but more than having me on the show, John actually spent, he's been podcasting for seven or eight years, and he spent uh, a good amount of time on the phone with me beforehand, just kind of walking me through um, 
what it's like, what it takes, and 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 what I want to accomplish as a podcaster. And I was, I was, you know, maybe a few months in at that point, maybe a little longer, but I was not quite sure. Um, well, I I wanted to get as much expert expert advice as I could, and John very uh, graciously volunteered his time to help me. So um, just recently, I was listening to another podcast, uh, and uh, this woman named. Um, Nicole Holland was on the show. I hadn't met Nicole, but um, she's like three or four times during this, during her her conversation, she mentioned John's name, and I thought, "What? Well, I'm I have so missed the boat here on reaching back out to John and <laughs> and seeing if he would be on my show." So uh, so glad so so I'm so I'm happy to have him here, John. Uh, I start I start every one of my podcasts with a simple question, and that is, "How did it happen for you?" Yeah, great. That's a good question. So. Um... You know, I have a strange background. As a kid, my family moved around the country multiple times, usually 3,000 miles away from family and friends. And what that taught me, especially moving in the middle of a school year, is that um, it, it taught me the, the challenge of b- developing relationships and also the importance of developing relationships. And um, my each time, the reason we moved is because my father had gotten laid off. He was in an industry where he you know, would, would lose a job. And then unfortunately he didn't really have, it wasn't the type of industry where he could just get a job immediately afterwards. And he couldn't like call someone up and say, can you give me a job? And so <clears throat> what, what I learned from that is that it's incredibly important to cultivate those relationships, um, proactively in advance. And I've done that throughout my career. And that's why, even though I went to basically a party school for college, I've had some amazing opportunities as a writer in, in the Clinton White House and a speechwriter for a, a governor of California as an early employee of DreamWorks, ran my own boutique, San Francisco, uh, in Silicon Valley, uh, legal practice as a lawyer, um, and, and then also launched and run my own, um, online business for a number of years and now helping, uh, B2B businesses to create profitable podcasts and to use them for business development purposes. And so, you know, that's been critically important to me. So for me, it's about relationships. When you ask how it happened, it happened from putting a priority on relationships and building relationships strategically. And I try and inspire and tell everyone else that they should be doing the same because we've been blessed with a great economy for the last few years, but we all know what it was like when we had crappy economies and people are really looking for any opportunity they can get. And so you got to build those relationships early so that you have them at times of challenge and struggle. Hmm. And you're, you're in Marin, California now outside of San Francisco. Is that, did you land there with one of these moves with your family? Uh, not with my family. It was after college. I had um, worked at the White House, then went to Sacramento, the California governor's office, and then came down to the Bay Area because my wife went to uh, grad school at um, north of San Francisco. And it was a convenient spot not too far from San Francisco where I could work. And And it's, you know, it's an amazing place to be. And so we've been here ever since. And was becoming a lawyer something that you had wanted to do uh, as as a teenager growing up, or was it something that sort of developed later, or what what was what yeah, was going it, through your mind? Yeah, it had gone through my mind. I thought about it in in college. <clears throat> um, I really 
when I was in uh, the White House in the California governor's office, I was surrounded by other lawyers who were working with me. And oftentimes we'd be in meetings and they were the people that I would lose arguments to. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I should go to law school because then I wouldn't lose arguments to these guys. And I didn't necessarily go to law school thinking that I would be a practicing lawyer for the rest of my life. I just knew it was a really practical uh, degree that would teach me how the world works. And more importantly, teach me that I don't need to have all the answers, but I can figure out the answers as I go along. That was probably the biggest revelation I had from being in law school. And so I practiced for a few years, but then it wasn't everything for me. You know, I, I eventually developed a business that was generating revenue that exceeded my legal income. And I also enjoyed doing that more than what I was doing as a lawyer, which often involved helping people to fight because you know, in litigation, you're helping people to fight one another. And, and I didn't really enjoy doing that. So I that's how I ended up gravitating away from it. Mm, I just, uh, it's coincidentally, earlier today, I had another podcast with a with a lawyer, and he said something so similar. He's like, when I first got into it, I was a trial lawyer, because my partner didn't like trial law. So I tried a case. And, he's, and after it, I was like, I don't like win lose arrangements. And which sounds yeah. kind of like what you said. I, like, I like to create win-win sort of things. And I thought that was just a very interesting perspective. And then you sort of said the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th we could talk for an hour about the pros and cons of the legal practice. It's a challenging, challenging industry these days. I think it's being disrupted and going to be disrupted by technology, AI, and things like that that are coming in. So um if you are practicing law and want to continue doing it, you really got to keep your finger on the pulse of those changes that are happening. So could you walk us through how you got uh, your job in the Clinton White House? Because I, I don't know that I've met anyone who's had, I don't know that I've met anyone who's had a job in a White House administration before. So sure. uh, I'm going to take advantage of that. And then how did, how did you make that? happen. Sure. It's actually a, it's a great story because I think it's got some good lessons. So um, I had been in college and I the, the White House really has a lot of um, interns that work there, as we all know. Um, and so I'd applied to the internship program and I'd worked in the um, speechwriting office for a semester. And it was an amazing experience. And I just worked my butt off. I was there all the time. You're not paid, you get academic credit, but I was working really hard to just make a really good impression amongst the speechwriters. And so I worked, you know, really hard. I was always there and I was, you know, providing research and notes. And I even wrote a speech that President Clinton delivered in the East Room of the White House. And I was standing there in the back watching him read my words. And it was just amazing. I was 22 years old to see that happen. And then afterwards, so I hadn't graduated from college left. So I, I, I went back to college. I still had a couple of semesters left. And I kept in touch with the speechwriters. So I continued to deliver value to them in the form of sending them, you know, poems and speeches and clips and things like that, either in the snail mail or by email, I would send it to them. And eventually, when an opportunity came along um, about a, a writing job, I was still top of mind because I'd continued to do that. And I think that's why I got the job was because I didn't just go dark when I left. I kept in touch with them. I continued to deliver value to them. 
And that's, you know, why they told me about the job. It wasn't like White House jobs are not advertised in Craigslist or Indeed or anything like that, you know? Sure, yeah. You know, I mean, maybe they're listed on the website now. I don't know. But at least back then, it was like, you kind of had to hear about it. It was the only way, really way to, to know about these things. So that's how I heard about it. And then the other important lesson from that experience was, um, so I'd been told about this and I get a call about a week later from who eventually became my boss, the woman who, who hired me. And she calls me up and she, she says, Hey, you know, Lowell Weiss was the person who told me about the speechwriter who told me about the job. And so she said, Lowell told me about you. I wanted to give you a call. I wanted to get your resume. I want to get some writing samples, you know, just telling me about the logistics of it and everything. And I said, great, I'm happy to send all these things to you. But, you know, by the way, if you want to open up today's New York times, you open up to the opinion page go to the letters. I've actually got a letter to the editor in today's New York Times. And it was a little bit of a coincidence that that had happened. But I had known and been given a tip by Lowell that he was giving my passing along my name. And I'd sent in a letter to the editor to the New York Times, which happened to be published on the very day that I got that phone call. So of course, it was impressive, right? You know, to like say that it was a little bit, little bit random. But the reason that I tell that story is because if you have a big opportunity that may be coming your way, we don't often think about what else can I be doing to stand out? What else can I be doing to make a, a, a really great first impression and position yourself for that kind of opportunity? And so that's, you know, I think that's a great lesson for anyone that you should be looking for those ways in which you can stand out and be different. And you, first of all, how'd you think about that? And two, it sounds like you did that deliberately. Um in in anticipation that you would yes. get a call and you could reference i did yeah absolutely yeah yeah i mean i i sent it out it was a little bit of a coincidence that she called on the very day that it was published yep. you know i i you know i like to joke that if she'd called like the very next day it probably would have been a letter to the editor in like the akron world herald or something or whatever the name that akron newspaper is you know <laughs> like sure. i mean i just happened to i'd sent out other letters to the editor to other newspapers which I, I recall were printed around the same time. It just hap so happened that the New York Times one was published on the very same day that she gave me a call. Okay, so you so it, you, it was sort of like a shotgun approach. If you could get one or the more that you could get, it's something to point to. Yes. As, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. yeah. Huh. So, um, so you're an intern and President Clinton reads a speech that you wrote. Okay, so what happens before that and what happens after that? Does anybody well, Yeah, so one good po one point I would like to make is that I'd been waiting for a while to get that opportunity to write a speech cuz that didn't give the interns those types of opportunities all that often. I'd been answering phones, doing research, going up to the library, you know, um, editing speeches, you know, running off, off errands, things like that that interns do. And then when I finally got this opportunity, I had about three days notice and I worked through the weekend on it. And it wasn't a big speech or anything. It was one of these, you know, whenever a team, uh, a collegiate team wins a national championship, they come down to the White House and the president meets them, greets them in the East Wing. They have a big ceremony, that kind of thing. And so it was the national championship men's and women's basketball teams that were coming down. But I worked my butt off and I, I worked on it all weekend long. I came in both days. Uh, to the executive office building, which is where we worked out of right next to the West Wing. And I worked really hard on it. And I was really prepared, even though I didn't know a lot about college basketball going into that experience. I learned as much as I could going into it. And so that's just, you know, I think that's an important lesson is when you have an opportunity like that, you really need to show up, you really need to follow through. 
Um, and yeah, and then after it, you know, I mean, I just continued to try and do my best, you know, throughout the rest of the internship. And then as I mentioned, you know, remain in touch with the speechwriters after I went back to college. And when you got the actual job, what was what was different then than than the responsibilities you had as an intern? That's another great question. So actually, one thing I would like to point out is that when I applied for the job, I was actually working at the time in the entertainment industry in LA. I was working for DreamWorks at the time, um, and I had come from LA. Uh, my my family is works in the entertainment industry. My brother still does as well. He works in reality TV now. And um, so I'd had the opportunity to uh, work at DreamWorks. And I think the fact that I was coming from a very different environment in a very different but respected area helped me stand out. Because I think if I'd been applying from like say Capitol Hill, if I'd been one of a thousand Capitol Hill staffers that was applying for this position, I think I would have been one of many and I wouldn't have gotten the job. So in retrospect throughout my career, what I've always, what has been successful for me is when I stand out and do something different. So now I have a law degree, but I'm not competing against lots of other lawyers where I'm competing against Yale grads and Harvard grads and, you know, uh, you know, Georgetown grads and stuff like that. Instead, I'm, I, ha I still have a lawyer, still have the, the lawyer hat on, but I'm not practicing law and I have a business that is, is different and that helps me to stand out. So I think that's a really important peop, uh, you know, um, lesson for anyone in any kind of career. And after the experience at the White House, you I think I heard you say you went back to California and you were working for the governor at the time. Right. Yes, I was. was yeah. Was yeah. that also was that also in a writing capacity or was that um, Yeah, I was a speechwriter for the California governor. Um, okay. Gray Davis at the time. So yeah, and and actually, I, I forgot you also asked about what the difference was between interning and and writing. And yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the interning intern position was great because I was in the speech writing office, and and there were all kinds of interesting topics that come across your desk. Um, the the um, the writing job in presidential letters and messages, we basically, we like kind of were like second tier speechwriters. We wrote everything the speechwriters didn't have time or bandwidth to write, including video scripts, proclamations, things like that. Um, one really cool story is um, I actually wrote the 1999 Thanksgiving proclamation, which originally was authored by George Washington and um, Abraham Lincoln, and they were written by themselves. Like they didn't have big staffs back then. So they wrote, you know, I, when I sat down to write this thing, I'm picturing like George Washington with a quill pen and like a lamp doing it himself, you know, and these were historic documents that people studied today. Like we don't really pay attention to them anymore, but it was the reason that we celebrated Thanksgiving originally. And, um, Lincoln's a proclamation for Thanksgiving was credited with helping to unify the country in the depths of the Civil War. And so just working on those things was absolutely amazing. And you don't get that kind of responsibility when you're an intern, for sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, another cool story about that same proclamation is um, I had, having worked in the entertainment industry, I'd been put in touch with someone who was working on a, a TV show that was about to come out about politics in Washington, D.C. And this mutual friend of mine had put me in touch with this person. And um, long story short, it was Aaron Sorkin who was working on The West Wing. 
And he was looking at the time, it was before the show was on the air, he was looking at the time for some advice on what it's like working in the White House. So I told him what my life was like. I didn't share any state t- secrets or anything like that. So, you know, I wasn't violating confidentiality or, or um, security clearance or anything like that. And um, he got really busy after the show because it was a huge hit. And so I didn't communicate with him as much afterwards, but I sent him that proclamation. A year later, I turn on the Thanksgiving episode of the uh, West Wing, and the storyline throughout the episode was about the speechwriters writing this Thanksgiving proclamation. The entire no. storyline was about the writing of the one that I had written. And then at the very end, and you can go watch it, the very end of this episode, um, Martin Sheen plays the president, of course, and he's about to go into the Rose Garden to read this proclamation that he's holding. And he looks down and he reads, you know, it's very dramatic and climactic and everything. And he looks down and he reads the first line of the proclamation. And it's the exact same first line of the, the proclamation that I had written that he reads on that show. And what I love about that, which I tell, remind my wife of, is that the speechwriter who was playing the person who wrote that proclamation was Rob Lowe. So ah. I like to say <laughs> that I actually had Rob Lowe play me on TV, even for a very small port- portion. Uh, I love it. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that that's kind of an amazing, you know, I didn't tell that story for a lot of years. Um, but, you know, it's cool to have that kind of impact. And And the other thing is that, you know, it has such a dramatic impact on people's lives. Like, Anything the White House does, you know, I don't even want to talk about politics now, but anything the White House does touch touches people's lives. So, like, you know, if you send a letter to someone who sent a letter to the president and you send a letter back, I mean, they're framing that thing. You know, it's like yeah. such a big impact. So just, you know, being part of that big of an organization that touches people's lives is really moving. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud of many of the things that the administration did, even if I had you know, didn't have a lot to do with it. And how do you, uh, you may have mentioned it and I just missed it because I was listening to the story, but not well enough, but how do you, how do you run into Aaron Sorkin and when he's looking for yeah, it was sort of some background on? Yeah. It so a, it was, it was someone who, this was a person who um, knew him, had worked with him. Okay. And I had worked with her in a different capacity. So okay. it was just from my having worked in the entertainment industry immediately prior to working at the White House um, was how she ended up um, introducing me to him because he was looking f- to talk to people who's writing. a You know, he'd already written he'd already done the American president. But he, at that time, he was looking to do West Wing. And so he's looking to talk to people who worked in the White House about their experience and what it was like. So okay. he was eager it's, to hear. Yeah. And since that um, time, you've continued to do a lot of writing. In fact, when uh, I think when Todd Barden told me you first talked with him, it was maybe about writing some type of an article. In, yeah, yeah. You, you, I mean, you've written for a lot of different yeah. magazines and such. And so how did you sort of take, was that a natural progression from the speech writing into that, or was it some other intentional thing that you did to to make sure that you got those opportunities? Yeah, I, I think that um, I've always enjoyed writing. I continue to enjoy writing, which is ironic because I don't write a lot now. Um, podcasting is more of an, uh, you know, it's a vocal uh, medium. You speak into a microphone and I don't write as much. 
Um, so for a long time, I gravitated towards writing until I discovered that other mediums were moved the needle more in in my business and and including webinars before that. And so I I still write, um, but I don't write for publications that I have in the past. So I you know I wrote for Forbes, I wrote for Huffington Post, I wrote for Business Insider, I wrote for Entrepreneur, I wrote for all these different places. Um, but then eventually you got to really make it a, a cold, hard assessment. And I'm sure you did this in your business where you just take a step back and you're dispassionate and you say, okay, you know, I've done this and this and this and this, and what really made the difference? What really moved the needle? And if something doesn't move the needle, then you, you got to cut it and move on and focus on the other stuff that does move the needle. And so that's why I don't write as much as frequently um, because I find that, you know, you can, you can, you can do that. You can write for these big publications over and over again, but eventually it's kind of diminishing returns. You know, once you've written, I tell people now, they ask me like, oh, I want to write for Forbes or something like that, or I want to write for whatever. I say like, do it once so you can say you did it and then don't continue doing it because then it just becomes an obligation and mm. you're probably not going to get as great returns as you think. So I wrote for a bunch of those different different publications and it was okay, but you know, it wasn't like huge. It wasn't like it didn't create massive leaps uh, in terms of advances for my business. And so that's why I kind of gravitated away from it. And were you doing it for the business or were you doing it more for just your love of writing and then seeing if you could get it published somewhere? Was there a blend or did it start one way, go the other? I'm just curious what what your motivations were originally, because you seem very intentional, for example, yeah. about getting the um, the White House job. Right. So no, I mean, when I was writing for all those different business publications, they were, it, it was a business purpose behind it. Um, okay. I've done other types of writing, which really didn't have a clear business purpose. Um, but that's really more of a hobby. Like, for example, um, and this actually kind of did have a business purpose. So when I was practicing law as a lawyer, and I was looking for good referrals, good clients, that sort of thing, I actually found that one of the best referral sources for me was my wife's mother's club, which she belonged to, which had a newsletter. This is a glass, glossy, full color magazine that they produce on a monthly basis, just kind of like insane, phenomenal, like that they do this really high quality thing. And I wanted to write about legal topics because I wanted legal referrals, but they didn't really want that because one, it's kind of boring. Like who wants to read a lawyer, you know, article from a lawyer every month? So I started writing stories about my then one-year-old son, and it, I created this column called Dad's Corner, and it didn't exp expressly have something to do with um, legal topics, but it ended up generating a lot of great referrals for me um, because I built a reputation within this club. It was it's three it still is three thousand successful women who are suddenly like a lot of them are home or they work part time because they've had children and they refer like crazy amongst each other. So if you can become a provider who's referred by other women and moms within this group, then you can get a ton of referrals. So from a strategy standpoint, it actually worked out really well, even though what I was writing about wasn't about my knowledge or expertise per se. Got it. And the entertainment experience that you've mentioned several times at DreamWorks, what, what were you doing there? I I did a variety of different things. I bounced around a little bit and worked in different departments. 
Um, the first job I had there was actually during college, a couple of summers, summers earlier, before I went to the White House, I had been a production assistant on a early game show that was like one of the first projects that they ever did. And it was super exciting working for them at the time because um, the, you know, they didn't have a lot of projects and DreamWorks at the time was like the Tesla of its day. It was like the hot company, you know, that everyone wanted to work for, certainly in the entertainment industry. And so it was, you know, it was really fun and everything. You know, now I look at it, you know, kind of like with some, wisdom and retrospect in retrospect you know we have these ups and downs in your career where you can be like at the top and then you can be at the bottom and somewhere in between and it's natural and it happens and so i i find that it's even more reason to nurture relationships important relationships in your industry in your field so that you have connections at times that there, there are going to be times of struggle. There are going to be times when you lose a big client. There are going to be times when you lose a job. And so it's really even more important to do that. And when you decided that you were going to, you know, not give up the practice of law and move into more of what you're doing now, which we'll get into, was that a difficult decision for you? Or what was your thinking process as you were going through that? You mentioned before that, you know, the legal profession may be, um, disintermediated uh, by Good by AI word. and technology. Thank you. I pulled that one from way deep. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if that was. I don't know if that was the the sort of the um, the thing that prompted you to make that move. And I'm just curious what what you go through to make a decision like that because you spend a lot of time getting the degree and yeah i mean i spent one hundred and thirty thousand dollars which seems cheap now by today's standards hundred thirty thousand dollars going to law school um yeah and so you know i definitely had family members who questioned why i was doing it i i would say i didn't start a blog and a podcast with the intent of it replacing my income as a lawyer it happened very gradually over time with some spikes along the way but um i didn't really intend that it would it would replace my income i i just Actually, at the time, I wanted to write a book, and everyone said, if you want to write a book, you got to start a blog first. That's a great way to build an audience and test your ideas. So I did, but then I found that a legal topic, a book about legal to- or a blog about legal topics wasn't going anywhere. So I had to reposition it and focus more on entrepreneurship and relationship building and networking, and that's when things kind of took off for me. And then I started the podcast as an extension of that, and that's actually what I really enjoyed doing a lot more even more so than actually doing the blog. And it was just, eventually I realized that there was a lot more opportunity and scalable scalable opportunity through these tools than practicing law. Like for example, I was just talking to someone about this the other day, California is 35 or so million people, 38 million people. Um, but that's not really, and, and I'm licensed to practice in California. So but that's not really the legal market, the possible legal market for me. For me, it's like much smaller. It really was just like Marin County, which is about 290,000 people. And it's really not 290,000 people. It's really people that have a legal need right now. So that's even narrower. And then it's really just people who have a legal need who would be willing to hire me for my area of expertise. So it really was like, instead of like 38 million people, it's really down to like a couple thousand, couple hundred people maybe at any given time who are a potential client for me. That's a really, really small pool. And then you take a look at there's 8 billion people on the planet, right? And it's like, well, 
that's a much bigger pool, you know? So if I can just get out of my head, like that, I must provide legal services. I can do anything. I can provide anything of value to people that people are willing to pay for me. Then why wouldn't I want to go to the much larger pool than restricting myself to this very narrow, very small window of people who might hire me? And so that was kind of the revelation for me. And then I also realized that there are these emerging tools that are just amazing, like, you know, an email list that allows you to communicate in a scalable way to much larger groups of people in a webinar, which allows you to communicate with much larger groups of people in a podcast, which allows you to record your voice once in five years from now, someone might contact you because of something that you recorded in 30 minutes, five years earlier. And I realized that it was a lot smarter way of operating and leveraging your time so that you're not stuck on this kind of, you know, a uh, hamster wheel that you can be stuck on when you're in a billable practice, a billable profession as I was. So it was a series of different revelations like that that got me moving towards in the direction of moving out, moving away from practicing law. But it didn't happen overnight. It took a lot of tests and figuring out what people are willing to pay me for and figuring out how to create different revenue sources and, you know, leverage that. And, you know, it, it was a many year journey and a lot of studying, a lot of figuring stuff out and trying stuff and throwing stuff against the wall and finding stuff that sticked. Uh, okay. And during that time that where you were exploring that, you still kept the law practice and sort of yeah. sort of straddle straddled both worlds while you were Yeah, yeah. So Tony Robbins says burn the boats. Burn the right. boats, don't go back. I don't believe in that. You know, for me that wasn't my experience. It was it was very gradual. It was initially 95% of my effort had to go towards my legal practice, getting revenue in the door from that kind of work, getting those types of clients. And initially, maybe 5% of my time could be spent on other things. And then once it started gaining a little traction, then I could do 10%, then 15%, then 20%, then 25%. And it, you know, it wasn't a perfect smooth trajectory. There were times when I put too much time into things that were aimed at the long term that we're going to have a payoff further in the future. And then I got in a cash crunch where I didn't have enough revenue coming in then right then. And so I had to really, you know, take myself out of it and readjust my priorities. So it definitely took a while to do these things and to figure out like, okay, what's my allocation this month and the amount of time on a daily basis, weekly basis that I can allocate to building the business that I want to have versus maintaining the business that I have today. Okay. Sure. And I, I get the burn the boats thing is it's, it's uh it's a sexy thing to say. Right. And, and it does, I mean, it, I suppose in, on one hand it says, you know, you failure is not an option, right? You burn the boats, you, you, you gotta succeed, but, um, but you can also get crushed and drowned too. So sometimes, exactly. <laughs> sometimes it, it's, it's nice to have a little bit of a backdoor at least, um, just in case, cause sometimes you need to regroup. Uh, exactly. Like you said, you know, sometimes you get ahead of yourself. You need to regroup, and I agree. Yep. Whatever. Yeah. So you've you've um you. So I'm fascinated to get into a couple of things here. One is how long you've been podcasting, and 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 how you discovered it. I guess first of all, and then another thing that you uh, talk about a lot is building networks, and um, 
me being new to, to podcasting on relatively speaking. And, you know, I, I don't think I'm great at building networks either. Um, I'm, I'm just interested to learn a little bit about your thinking on both of those, both of those things. Yeah. And they're interrelated now. I mean, you know, when I was practicing law before I had a podcast, it was going to coffee with people and going to lunch with people and you meet someone at some bar association event and then you'd go and meet up over coffee and you'd be like, Hey, I'll support you. I'll refer people to you and you refer people to me. And then it usually didn't go anywhere, you know, and it wasn't a high leverage use of your time. The podcast I found was a better way to network with higher caliber people, frankly, like I would get into conversation with higher and higher caliber people. And initially I started just dipping my toe in the water locally here. And, you know, there's a company called three twins organic ice cream, which is nationwide. Now at the time they were kind of going more nationwide, but they're local. They're, they're close to here. And I reached out to the owner of that and he said, yeah, I'll be a guest on the podcast and interviewed him. And there's a local, um, independent uh, baseball, like a triple A kind of farm league baseball team. And I reached out to the owner of that and he said yes, and he would have me on. And I interviewed lawyers um, in my community that were way ahead of me, you know, had big practices, were really successful. And I interviewed them and they said yes. And it was like, wow, this is really cool. And eventually I realized it was a more effective way of networking because you're delivering value unlike a coffee meeting where you're maybe inconveniencing the person on the other side, depending on their level of relative level of success and how busy they are and how much of an inconvenience it is to meet with you versus like when you're recording it over the internet and you're publishing it to the web, you're elevating them and sharing their thought leadership with the world, giving them exposure, promoting their business. And so it's actually a totally different ball game. So that's what was kind of revolutionary for me was how that, um, would have an impact. Now, I you said I've been doing it for a long time. The truth is I've had some major stumbles along the way. You and I were talking beforehand about systematizing the podcast, and I think that's critically important because a number of years ago when my business partner Jeremy and I had just become partners, um, he had been podcasting for longer than me and had worked on this big Mixergy podcast as senior producer there. And I look back at the end of the year, it was around the holidays, around December, and I realized I'd only published seven episodes, and I intended to put out one per week, but I had too many things on my plate. I'd put too many things on me, including like show notes and things like that, and so I asked him to help me systematize everything, which he did, and then the very next year, I put out 52 episodes. So when you think about it, like that's 52 high-caliber people that you are building, deepening establishing a relationship with versus seven, such a big difference for any business. And so once I put those systems in place, then it became a lot easier. And now I enjoy the process because I get out of my own way and I delegate all the junk that I don't enjoy doing so I can focus on doing the stuff that I do enjoy doing. And I do absolutely view it as a tool for networking because you're using it as a as a proactive tool for establishing and building relationships with people who you want to stab, you want to surround yourself with. And as you um, systematized it and were able to, to do more, um, more episodes, how did you, how did you build the network of people that you wanted to talk to first? That's one question. The other question is how did you start making an actual business out of, 
what you were doing because I I don't have a business but with my podcast. So my podcast now is just about having conversations with really interesting people like you who've had some success, sharing the stories of their success, inspiring people to um, hear something that that motivates or prompts them to take an action they, they wouldn't otherwise take. For, for example, sending letters to the editor when you're applying for something because you want to get noticed in a different way. So that's sort of what I'm doing. It's not a it's 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 an entertainment thing, but not a business thing. And you're, um, you have a different approach, right? Yeah. So, so there's two parts to that question. So we'll start with the the first one, which was basically how do you network and outreach? How do you reach out to guests and how do you get yeah. them to say yes? You'd be surprised how many people will say yes, um, especially when you position it right. It's more than people think. A lot of times they think, oh, I've got a new podcast starting out. How am I going to get people to say yes? And there's plenty of people who will say yes. And you start, of course, with your immediate network. So people who already know, like, and trust you. Start there. Start with people you have a comfortable relationship with, even a friendship with first, and get that under your belt. You don't want to start with some really big name first, and you're probably unlikely to get them anyways. So you, you want to build some experience under your belt. Um I didn't, LinkedIn was not as big of a thing when I started podcasting, but it is now and it's a tremendous tool. I get all kinds of great guests from LinkedIn, you know, so you can decide your parameters and do different searches on there. Um, the other thing is looking at like your immediate network. So, you know, what events you go to, what conferences you go to, what groups you belong to, what organizations you belong to, um, what organizations, organizations would you like to belong to? And reach out to those people, you know, and and really like decide proactively what is you want, what do you want your network to look like, because you can make it happen, you know, you can know no one and you can rise to the top of an industry. And my business partner Jeremy and I have done this over and over again with different verticals where we've decided, okay, we're going to target this vertical and we're going to work our way up. And then you ask for recommendations. You become more referable when you have a podcast if you ask people. Who else could I interview? Who else do you know that meet these parameters? This is the type of person I want to interview. And they'll gladly introduce you to that person because you're not a- approaching it as I'm a, a, a seller. Or I want to sell something. You're approaching it as I'm a giver. I want to give you something. So for example, I say this all the time. Like, let's say you're like a web designer. Like if, if a web designer comes to me and says, hey, John, you know what? You're connected to Mike Malatesta and I want to, redesign his website will you introduce me so that i can sell him on my services so i can redesign his website i'm gonna like no i'm not gonna introduce you you're just gonna pitch the guy i don't want to put mike into that situation but if that person has a podcast it's a lot easier introduction because i can be like you know hey mike there's this guy has got a a a podcast and he'd like to interview you on the podcast and it totally flips the script It's mm-hmm. about like featuring that person instead of doing a sales pitch. Now I would not recommend that that person then turns around and immediately pitches you on. Yeah, something. right, right, right. But it's an opportunity to then, you know, build a relationship, build trust. And if you do that right and you have something that that person might need from you, then it may lead to business in the future. So that was the first question you asked about was network and outreach. The second piece was about profit or ROI, how do you get profit or ROI from it? And how have I gotten profit and ROI from my podcast? And it's evolved over the years. Initially, it was practicing law, right? I was a lawyer. So I was looking for legal clients. 
So I started by interviewing other lawyers in the community and interviewing my clients. The first person I interviewed was one of my clients who it had hired me for a very tiny matter, but it turns out that he had been very successful, started com companies that had gone public. And so I said, can I have 20 minutes of your time? Can I interview you? He gave me that. And he ended up hiring me for a bunch of other stuff and becoming a really good client. So I just continued doing that over and over again with my existing clients and then asking other lawyers in the community, hey, do you have any good clients that would be good for me to interview? And you know, Again, you have to decide your parameters of who is the type of person that you want to interview. And I just, then I started reaching out to bigger businesses in my community. And then I went even further and I thought, hey, this author I, I, who was, whose last book I read has got a new book coming out. Maybe I'll reach out to them and have them come on. And they did. And then I went to conferences and I'd see a keynote speaker and I would reach out to them before or after or something like that and say, hey, can I interview my podcast? And instead of having to bum rush them at the stage and with 20 other people and try and get a piece of their time, I actually could follow up with them afterwards and I'd get 45 minutes of dedicated one-on-one -on -one time and I realized how much more effective that was. So, so eventually it got bigger and bigger and the profit came from different sources, it either came from my own services. It also came from uh, digital courses that I created eventually. And it also came from promoting other offerings and getting a commission, a referral commission for that. So there were other digital courses that I promoted and recommended to my audience after having tried them myself. And there's other software that I recommended. So if you build an audience of people, there are ways to monetize it. And also the other thing is, is that, you know, these days uh, it's less about the audience and it's more about what the, how the podcast can get you connected to high leverage opportunities. So for example, rather than worrying about getting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of downloads, I worried about getting in with different communities and audiences. So one year, I wanted to do a lot of webinars. I ended up doing over 83 live webinars, including for a division of Salesforce and for Tony Robbins' company and for AWeber and some really big companies. And I used the podcast as the tool for getting into conversation with these companies and then talking about ways in which we could collaborate, which then led to the next opportunity. So it's not, it's, it's a little bit of an indirect strategy. So it's not like I'm going to build a big audience. I'm going to get a bunch of downloads. I'm going to charge companies for advertising or sponsorship. It's a little bit of an indirect strategy, but there are people these days, there are companies these days that are using all kinds of different ways of monetizing their business from, you know, putting together real estate syndicates to Jason Calacanis, of course, who's got, who's using his podcast in order to build his personal brand, promote different events that he does, all kinds of different things. Just software companies that are using it, using podcasts in order to feature um, their existing strategic partners or to get into conversation with potential strategic partners or referral partners or audiences. It's a great way to um, get more exposure for your own personal brand or for your business. So it's to answer your question about profit and ROI, it, you have to be clear on what you know your strategy is going to be. What are you selling? Is it a service? Is it software? Or is it someone else's service or software that you're promoting? You're taking commission or a cut of that or some kind of partnership arrangement and you use it in that way. And then also like, what's the indirect strategy? How can you use this to get into other communities of people? So for example, maybe you do consulting and you want to get on, you want to be a speaker at this industry conference that is the biggest conference in your industry. Well, we've done this. 
you can reach out to the organizers of that conference, feature them on your podcast. If there's a board of advisors, interview all of them on your podcast. And when you kind of, I hate to use the word, but infiltrate, you know, you, you work your way into these types of communities, then it will naturally lead to collaboration opportunities. And before you know it, you're on stage, you're talking to that audience full of great potential clients for you, you know? And yeah. so it's, it's a kind like of an you, indirect. Yeah. Like you said, you're, 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 you're establishing credibility with them by offering them the value of getting their message out to, to a, people who wouldn't ordinarily find it or be able or, or, yep. or, yeah. or be their audience, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And there's other value too. I mean, so I always try really hard to introduce my guests to other people too. Um, so I try and learn about them and what they would, what they need or who they're trying to connect with, who they want to meet. Um, because I want to deliver value even further. You know, I want to continue to deliver value to that person. So, I don't always do it, but I try and do that or I try and keep them top of mind so you can continue to deepen that relationship further. So it's really like the, the podcast is the start of the relationship. It's not the yeah. the end. It should be the beginning. Do you find uh, you, you know, of course you've been doing this a lot longer than I have, but I have most of the people that I bring on, even though there are, I don't know how many podcasts today, there are lots of them, but most of the people that I bring on have either one never been on a podcast or two uh, they don't even they don't even they don't even listen to podcasts so there's 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 um so they don't even know the the power they don't know the power they don't know what they're just like okay i'll just i'll i'll do it but they don't know what to expect um but they all uh they all enjoy it like they get at least i may be biased but they all enjoy the experience so i think to myself there's there's still a lot of room for this to, to grow because it just does seem like maybe 25% of the people are even aware of all this education or exposure or whatever they can yeah. get. Well, these days, statistically, about a third of all Americans, at least, um, are listening to a podcast once a month or more. And the people who do listen to podcasts tend to binge consume them and listen to a lot of them, like a lot of hours. Um, a lot of times it's on a commute or walking the dog or working on the gym or something like yeah. that. So awareness is definitely helping. Um, and I think that's great. You know, I, honestly, it's not about the medium. I don't even care if we talk about it being podcast because I've used this exact same strategy before I did it with, with podcasts. I did it with books and I did it with articles and I did it with blog posts Ultimately, it's not about the podcast. It's about featuring and taking interest and in promoting the person that you want to connect with. And people love talking about themselves. They love the opportunity to share what they're working on, what they're focused on. And when you give them that opportunity, you take interest in them. It's a wonderful thing. And it's one of the best ways that I know of to build a sincere relationship with people, even if it's someone who has achieved a lot in their career, has fame or notoriety or has built a big business, it's a way of cutting through the noise and leveraging genuine humanity and genuine human connection 
Um, and that I hope will never go away. And it doesn't really matter what medium you're using. I mean, the, the first time I did this, I didn't even know what a podcast was barely. I didn't have a podcast. All I did was I said, I'm going to record this. I'm going to publish it to the web somehow. And I just like uploaded the audio file to my blog or something like that. And so, uh, you know, there are different ways you can leverage the strategy. Now I think that podcasting is, is the best combination of ease, speed, and effectiveness. And so that's why I do it instead of writing longer articles or writing a book every single time, because that takes a lot of time. And if you can minimize the amount of extra work that you have, then that's more time that you have to focus on building relationships. So instead of doing 10 people in a year, when you have to write an article every time, you can do 50 people in a year. And I'd rather have those relationships than leave 40 relationships on the ground, you know? So, so have you found too, uh, as you were talking about people who've been successful and this is a different way to share their story, which is kind of what I'm all about. But then you, you mentioned the writing and I thought to myself, cause this has happened to me a bunch of times. Well, not a bunch of times, but when I get interviewed by somebody and they write it, there's always something that I take issue with. I didn't say that you're mischaracterizing, you know, the, 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 the spirit of the conversation or, or whatever. There's always some component that I'm, that you're not like, that's not a hundred percent. Right. Whereas on the podcast, it's, this is, this is what I said. I'm intentional about what I say. You're publishing it just the way I say there's a certain, um, I don't know. There's a certain certainty, I guess, to, to it over being interviewed and having someone, you know, look at their notes and, or transcribe what they, you know, or edit. Right. Because, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. I and mean, it's a great point. You know, um, it does, it does have certainty to it because they can't alter it as easily as they could. Although it will happen more in the future. You know, there's this whole thing about deep oh, fakes. Sure. Yeah. 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 And you know, there, there are actually services now that are aimed at podcasters that are designed so that you can type in at words that will then produce audible sounds that sounds just like the speaker. So in other words, let, let's say that we this you're using this software to edit together what I'm saying here right now in this podcast episode. They could cut out words easily, which you can do right now, but they could also add words. Uh, yeah. And it sounds just like the speaker. This technology is evolving, but you can see how like a year, two years, three years from now, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be here. Oh, um, great point. You'll be able to get anybody on your podcast at that time. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> the bar right. will be yeah. The bar right, will be exactly. very low to get President Obama on your exactly podcast, exactly right. right. How have you had all two hundred, all forty presidents have been on your? How do you get Jefferson? I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish yeah. I could tell you how I did it, but it's a secret. Yeah, I contacted Jefferson on LinkedIn. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you mentioned um, your partner, Jeremy, and I think it's Wise. Is that how you say the last Weiss, name? Yeah, or, yeah, Wise. And your company is Rise Twenty Five. Yeah. So what? Tell what is what is what is the purpose of Rise Twenty Five? Yeah. So we help B two B businesses to get clients, referral partners, and strategic partners uh, using a done-for-you podcast. So it's it's one part, and this is really critically important, using having the right strategy in terms of systems in place and 
you know, featuring the right types of people, right types of content, the right types of referral partners, clients, that sort of thing. Um, and then it's also taking 98% of the work off of your plate so that you can focus on the highest and best leverage use of your time, which is this, connecting with the person on the other end of the microphone so that you can take all the other stuff off of, off of your plate. Um, and this entire service was designed very deliberately by two podcasters who have over 16 years experience doing this. Our whole team has about 20 years experience. Uh, with podcasting. And we've learned from our own mistakes <laughs> over the years um, that this is what it takes in order to be successful as a podcast. You need to have a good strategy in place and you need to take as much stuff off of your plate as possible. And, I, you know, so many great, wonderful things have come to my life because of podcasting that I'm just really passionate about helping other people to do it because I've been to people's weddings. I've been on vacation with people. I've had more meals and, you know, and get togethers with people that I connected with through podcasting. So I want to share it with the world, even beyond anyone we can, you know, the number of people that the small number of people that we can help as clients. I want to share it with the world. I want other people to do it. And so I, I'm very, you know, vocal about sharing what we find leads to success and leads to longevity. And I think that's um, that's a wonderful attitude, and you've demonstrated it with me, where and and other people have as well, where they're willing to share, you know, everything about how to podcast because they want you to do it well. Where there's that's probably not the case in a lot of other disciplines you know they'll, they'll share there's it's more i don't know it seems sure. more competitive yeah yeah i mean right yeah i mean for me it's so much more bigger than that it's so much more personal my business partner his grandfather was a, a holocaust survivor um mm -hmm. he'd been in the concentration camps and everyone in his family perished except for him and his brother and about 25 years ago or something like that the holocaust foundation came and sat down and recorded an interview with him and preserved his story, told his story. And that was the inspiration for why Jeremy started his podcast because they have that, they have his legacy, his story was told, was preserved. And so that's another really important component of this. And actually just like about two weeks ago, Jeremy got an email from a woman who was emailing him because her husband had just passed away and he had been a guest on Jeremy's podcast and she had just gotten done watching it again, you know, watching the video. And that's such a wonderful gift to like preserve that, that legacy uh, and that wisdom for that person. And so, you know, I encourage everyone to do it for yourselves, but also to do it for everyone around you, you know, cause when, when you start a podcast and you interview others, you're sharing their wisdom. And so it's a tremendous act of generosity. Um, and so, as I said, we can only help a very, very, very small fraction of all the people out there to build and launch a podcast. And so I like doing interviews like this because uh, it, for me, it's so much larger and I hope that we can inspire more people to go out and do it just like you have. What would you say is unique about you? Um, I think that is what is unique about me is that I, I, I saw at a young age, the importance of relationship building, uh, of doing it proactively, doing it consistently and continuing to do it 
um, in a way that will, um, you know, that will benefit you, but also will benefit those people around you. Um, and that is really what lights me up. I enjoy doing it and I enjoy also helping others to do it as well. And in a way that is sustainable and that is going to support the work that they do. Hmm. And what's, what would you say, what's, what's next for you and for rise 25 and for, podcasting in general what what do you see you know whatever 10 years whatever your time yeah. horizon is yeah i mean what's uh, you know rise 25 has been around for about five years and we've been helping podcasters in different capacities since about 2009 um but the current version of what we do now and more importantly uh what we don't do what we stopped doing um has only really been around for about two years and so I love our clarity now as a business. I love that we stopped doing a bunch of other things that drained our energy and we're working on stuff that fills us with, with energy. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to just adding more good clients and helping them. Um, I'm also looking forward to sharing this wisdom, sharing this message, the importance of it. And this message will be roughly the same, even if the word podcasting or the, the tool podcasting changes dramatically. And to answer your question about where do I think podcasting is going? I think it's part of a larger movement away from a handful of large media companies and more towards everyone becoming a content creator and every business becoming a content creator. And certainly that's been a huge movement. So I think podcasting is part of that larger movement. You know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we only had a handful of media companies. And now anyone can basically be a media company. Anyone can produce content that can be heard anywhere around the world, not for a lot of money, you know. And you can also use it, use these two tools because they're more affordable in a way that can be profitable for you, be profitable for the people that you interview and can do a lot of good, a lot of good in the world all around. And so I think that that piece, I think that that movement podcasting will continue to grow. More car makers are installing entertainment systems where you can listen to podcasts directly in the car for, for many years while I was doing podcasting, it was really hard to download a podcast. It's gotten a lot right. easier and a lot more people have smartphones. And even, even as we record this today, only about half of the population on the planet has smartphones. So over the next five to 10 years, the other half of the population of the planet is going to be adding smartphones. So there's a lot more potential. So I think it's just going to continue growing. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I want to encourage everyone to check out John's podcast, which is the Smart Business Revolution. Uh, he does, he brings on some super. He's got a lot of super great guests there, and um, not me, not me. I, although I am on there, if you want to, you check are it out. one of them. You're I, right. I am yeah. one of them. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but it's been a pleasure talking to you, learning more about you and 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 what you do and how you help people. And um, I'm just really grateful for you, have, you uh, having made the time. Likewise, Mike. It was a pleasure and um, super excited for you with this podcast. So keep it going. I love it. I will. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the How Did Happen podcast, where we believe that success doesn't happen unless you make it happen. 
You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, please rate it and leave a comment as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the show, ideas for future guests, or whatever you'd like to share. And of course, you can always find me at MikeMalatesta.com. See you next time. Thanks again for listening to the How'd It Happen podcast.